Well, good morning again, everybody, as we are uh, getting ready to continue into our Proverbs series. If this is your first week with us um, during our Proverbs series, welcome. And uh, we're on week three. The, the main points in the previous two weeks are on the back of the notes you received in your bulletin. Um, and if you've been with us, then welcome back. We're glad to dive in together through God's word in the book of Proverbs. The idea of starting off our year and our decade learning and investing in God's wisdom, hiding it in our hearts, and seeing how that impacts our lives. And so we've been going through a Proverbs a day uh, reading plan. And so uh, that means that today, if you've already had your time with the Lord, you've read Proverbs 19. If you haven't yet, then you'll be able to dive into that later this afternoon or evening. So with that said, um, what I want to do is the two weeks ago, we talked about wisdom. The idea that a fool tries to live life according to his own or her own eyes. The wise start to live lives and see, God, see life through God's eyes. Last week, we talked about this idea of pressure. How pressure is not something that just stops when we get out of our teenage years and peer pressure. That we always need to figure out how to pray through harmful pressures or else we will become the prey to those harmful pressures. But now we're going to talk about the heart. And I want to just kind of start off with this idea that the heart, as we will dive in and learn more... It's far more than how we are feeling about something. It's much more akin to our will and our choices. But what I want to do is sometimes there are things that we want, there's desires we have in our hearts that we, we, we say we want and we really do want them, but then we start to think of like the work that's entailed to make it happen and it can get a bit overwhelming. Let me share a small example that this past week, uh, I officially started um, going to grad school. Uh, I'm doing online programs through Hope International University on Nutwood Avenue in uh, Orange or in Fullerton, California. It's fine. Then... We have, uh, but we had two days of like, like a day and a half of like intensive like residential classes. So uh, Dan Lewis and I are not just friends now, we're officially classmates, which is fun. Um, first off, that, I'm really excited you guys are excited. Second off, like we could be excited about like lots of good things too. That made me really, really happy. You're like, school, yay, school. And then it's like God's word, like, cool. Um, no, we're so, we're so, like, I was really great. Here's what happened, though, is I ended up going to class, and, you know, Dan could attest to it. That first day, we were in there for 10 hours with, like, a one-hour lunch, but there's, like, little five to 10-minute breaks, but a lot of good um, people sharing, a lot of good ideas, a lot of things to wrestle with. I think it's a way for me to continue to grow as a leader, uh, grow in Christian ministry, um, help our church to continue to grow, that, you know, we hear about the idea that every Learner isn't necessarily a leader, but every leader must be a learner. And so I want to make sure that we're continuing to learn um, in ministry and growing in that way. But here's the thing. We went there. We had a great day and a half of class and learning and, and taking a ton of notes. Uh, I still can't fully close this hand because I haven't been used to writing with a pen like actual people. And so, um, but here's the thing. Yesterday, we got back, I got back on Friday. Yesterday, I started to look at all the different um, assignments. I'm taking this class with Dan and another class. And I started to look at it, and all of a sudden, I had this moment of like, no one told me there'd be work in this, right? Like, I mean, obviously, I know there is, but, you know, there's, you know, things that we read online, and you have to do quizzes. Uh, you have to, like, do, um, it's online, so you have, like, discussion threads. And it's not hard stuff, but I can say objectively, oh, I would love to get a master someday. And it's different than saying, oh, I would love to do that at some point, and then, then saying, and then here I am, and here are the steps it's going to take to get there. That I'm not just going to show up and get a master's. And that we don't just show up and live the life that God has for us. It takes work. It doesn't mean that we earn our salvation. But Dallas Willard says it this way. He talks about how grace, the grace that we receive, isn't as opposed to or isn't the opposite of effort. It doesn't mean that, you know, this idea, we have to put effort forth still to live a life according to the way God has for us. Grace isn't opposed to effort. Grace is, the, is opposed to earning. Effort means we put work into our relationship with God as we would put our work relationship into any relationship, into a marriage, into our friendships, into our kids, into coworkers. There has to be work involved into it. So we don't just wake up and say, I want a great life with the Lord. 
We have to choose in our hearts every day not to feel and only do things when we feel like following God, but to make the choice of our will to decide that we see the work and we're going to go about that work every day. Recognize as we continue to lean into the Lord, we're going to continue to experience the life he has for us. See, we come into a culture or we live in a culture in which we don't like waiting. We don't like having any sort of waiting. Here's the thing. We have fast food so we can eat whenever we want. We have microwaves so we can cook things whenever we want. We have on-demand TV. So it's no longer like when I was growing up, there was like TGIF, like thank God it's Friday to watch like the ABC comedy lineup. Like there's no, we don't have appointment viewing anymore because y'all can make our own appointments with on-demand. We don't have this idea of, you know, you used to just have like albums that you had to listen to like all the songs on an album, even the ones you didn't like. Now we get to add playlists and make things the exact way we want it without having to wait for anything we don't want to experience. And so we want to lose weight without taking the time to eat well and to have good exercise. We want to be financially stable without making choices to get out of debt and to be able to save accordingly. We want to have a life that honors God without putting in the work to get it. And that may not be for all of us, but there are areas in which it happens to all of us at some point in our lives. We want this beautiful life with God, but we want to just have the harvest of a life with God and not always lean into the importance of the planting, the fertilizing, the, the reaping, the sowing, the gardening, the pruning until we get to that point of the harvest. So this morning, our main point inside your notes, if you follow along, say that God wants to give us the desires of our heart. Psalm 37 makes that clear. He, he wants to give us the desires of our heart. God wants to give us the desires of our heart, but there is some work that's required on our part. See, when it talks about Psalm 37, it's the idea of when we delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. It doesn't mean we can have our own selfish or self-focused desires and that God will just bless that. It's saying, no, no, no. In your heart, if our desires are to be closer to the Lord and to live the life God has for us, we'll receive that if we delight in him and him alone. But there are desires we all have, and, but there's work that's required before we get to that harvest. So I'd ask that you join me in a word of prayer as we dive into some things together, that we're going to list out some things that are areas that are desires that we may have or have had at some point. It won't be an all-encompassing list, but it's a list to get us started with six things. And then we're going to dive into some scripture and see what does it look like to maybe take some steps towards not just saying, hey, I want that harvest. What are the steps I need to take today to sometimes experience and reap that harvest in the future. So will you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you that you're the giver of all good gifts, including your word, which is living and active and powerful, Lord Jesus. And, and Jesus, you are the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. And so God, we pray that you would dwell among us now, Holy Spirit, to speak in and through your word in a way that makes it obvious why we are here. I pray, God, that I would decrease, you would increase, and that you would speak in a powerful, personal, impactful way to each and every person in this room and each person listening online later, God, that they would know the life you have for us is not necessarily an easy life, but it is good. And may we see the ways in which we can take steps to reap the benefits of a good life seeking after you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'm going to go on your, if you look at your notes again, on the left-hand side, there's a column and the top of that just talks about the harvest, like what our heart desires. Again, this isn't all encompassing. I'm not trying to capture every desire that we've ever had or will ever have, but here are some basic ones that we're just going to kind of step through a few of them here. Um, and here's some basic ones that I think if you don't resonate with all of them, you will resonate with at least maybe a few of them. The first one we see here is that I want a prosperous life. Now, to be clear, prosperous in this case doesn't necessarily mean financially like I have all the things that I want. Prosperous is this idea of a life of peace, a life that is good, that has been able to prosper. It doesn't mean everything's been perfect, but we've seen growth come out of it. We've seen life. We've seen goodness. It's a prosperous life, a life in which we're able to not look and say, oh, my life has wilted or that there's been harm but that there's a life that has been prosperous. We'll dive into that more in a few moments, but maybe that's not you. Maybe instead 
You don't say, I want a prosperous life. You say, I want success. And how you define success might be different than the way the person next to you defines success. Some of you will define success as the grades that you get in school because you say, I want to be known as a great student. Or some of you will define success as to which university you get into and attend. Some of you will define success based on the career path you choose, based on the promotions you receive, based on the house that you can purchase, based on the toys that you can get, based on all the things around you. Maybe some of you will define success based on what people think of you and be able to then become malleable and say, okay, well, I want this person to like me and this person to like me and this person to like me, so I'm going to become this kind of amorphous blob who doesn't have the, decide, the deciding factor of this is who I'm going to be. And we try to be all things to all people to the point where then we lose sight of who we are. We could be all things to all people to reach them for the Lord, but if we try to be all things to all people to the point where we don't know who God thinks we are and we base it on what other people think, then we're missing the point. That Galatians 1.10 talks about how am I here to still please men or am I a disciple of Christ? But if I'm still trying to please men, I cannot be a disciple. For people like me who struggle with people pleasing, that is a verse to the arrow of, or to the heart of my soul. And it's one that I need to take hold of. But this idea of I want a successful life, how do you define success? And then how are you driven to pursue that in the various ways um, in your life? Maybe some of you don't say, I want success. Maybe some of you just say, I want direction. I just want to know where I'm supposed to go, how that's supposed to look. Uh, and we can maybe decide our own direction. Maybe, maybe our direction of our career had been laid out because that's what our parents did and our parents' parents did. And so we didn't have a choice. And then we say, no, this doesn't feel like this is what I'm here to do and designed to do. But, you know, I, I, I have no direction because what I've been at doing for years doesn't feel right. It, it feels like I'm, you know, trying to do something backwards. It doesn't feel like it's where God has me. Maybe some of us are younger and we're trying to figure out what school we're and, and what we're going to study. And we say, I just want to know what, what God wants for me because we can decide to study something. But if you're like me, I went to college and changed my major, ended up changing schools, and God changed my calling. But sometimes we just want direction and know where are we supposed to go? Because what we don't want is to look back upon our lives and think, I've been really busy and stressed and I've been running a thousand miles an hour or a thousand miles a year and gone crazy, but I've gone nowhere. And I don't know where I'm meant to have been. So I don't know if I've missed the boat or not. Some of us want direction. Some of us say, we, I want a healthy life. Healthy can be physical, right? It can be making sure that we're, we're having, taking care of ourselves health-wise. It can be emotional. It could be, how do we have right relationships with one another? How do we address conflict in a way that is God-honoring and not spiteful? How do we be able to share and speak truth and love to hold one another up and to love one another in that way. For some of us, it might be spiritual. It's how do we have the kind of devotional life that isn't a box that is checked, but it's when God checks our hearts to make sure that we're walking alongside with him. It could be a physical, it could be emotional, it could be spiritual health, but we say, I want a, I want a healthy life. That, that's the end goal. That's the main focus. Number five, some of us say, you know what? I just want to know that I'm going to be provided for. I want to know that I'm going to have enough, that if I'm leading my family or if I have kids, I want to know that they're going to have enough to, to survive and that they're going to have enough to thrive. Or I want to make sure that I have enough things, enough resources, enough connections, enough networking to get where I want to go. We say, I want to be provided for, and I want to know that I'm okay in that, and that I don't have to worry or fear or stress out about it. I just want to know that things are good, and my retirement will be big, and my kids' kids will have money. I mean, all those different things. And then for some of us, we don't know, some of you may not be on this part of the journey yet. If you're here to this morning, I'm prayerfully hoping that you are here uh, for this reason. But whether we have a relationship with God yet or not, we want to know that God loves us. We say, I want to know God loves me. That if you don't know the Lord yet and you're here, we're so thankful and we're excited that you are here with us. And if that's you, then maybe, maybe there's part of you, whether you'd admit it or not, that is just trying to figure out, like, who is this God? Because if he's really good 
and he's, I'm supposed to believe he loves me. Well, if he's good, then I want to know, like, does he love me or, or is this something where like, I'm too far gone? Am I, have I struggled too much, messed up too much and, and fallen, fallen too far away to ever really know that God loves me? And to that, we see how Jesus came that while we were still far from him, he died for us. That it's not about uh, the grace we receive from him isn't about our earning it. It's through the fact that Jesus Christ paid it for us. And so if that's you, you might just want to, I just want to know God loves me. For those of you who have a relationship with God, maybe you have for days, weeks, months, or years, you might be in this place where it's like, yeah, I, I hear you say he loves me, but you don't know all the things that I've done, all the thoughts that I've had, all the things that I've said. I mean, because if people really knew me, if people, if you all knew mine and, I, and you all knew your own sin, if we all knew our own sin, well, I know how depraved I am. It's what Paul says that we are the, we each, that he was the chief of all sinners. Why? Because when we believe what Jesus says, that thinking about something like anger is like murder, if thinking about someone that's not our spouse is like adultery, if thinking about these things shows the, how deep our depravity is, then all of us know our sins and our depravity more so than anybody else could. And yet, God knows. And yet, if we confess our sins, he's righteous and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And yet, he seems to define us not by our sin, but by our relationship with the Savior. That we no longer have to cry out that we are forever slaves, but Jesus says that we are now friends. You want to say, I just want to know God loves me because I've fallen short. And we see the beauty of that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we cannot make a way on our own, but he made a way where there was no way, and we believe he can do it again. So those are kind of a brief summation. Again, not all-encompassing of every desire someone may have, but I believe that all of us can look at one of those desires at least and say, yep, that's been one that has helped shape my life, or that's one that I'm, I'm currently experiencing, or whatever it may be. So what I want to do now is if that's the harvest, if that is the, the end result that we want to have a life that is prosperous or successful or has direction or that there's, we're provided for or we know God loves us or we're healthy, if we want to have that, what's the work that needs to be done? What are the seeds that need to be planted today that need to be watered each and every day? And what does God need to do so we could see that? What, what's, our, what's our syllabus? What's our list? What are the things we have to do? So in the right side of the column, so we have the left side has the harvest, what our hearts desire. On the right side, we'll say the work, what is required. Let's take a few minutes to look at Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 12. That as we dive into this passage, we're just going to take, it's basically two verses at a time um, as we look at each of these different topics here. But I want to start off with Proverbs 3, verse 1 and 2, as we talk about the work and what's required. Verse 1, my son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. That Proverbs 3, 1 is very similar to Proverbs 1, 8, and 9, which we read last week, the idea of a, of a father saying, my son, listen to this teaching, take hold of it honor God and do these things. So in Proverbs 3, starting in verse 1, my son, don't forget my teaching, but keep it in your heart. And this is where I need to kind of circle back to something we hit on earlier. This idea that, again, in our culture, when we say something about our heart, we want to follow with all our heart, or we love someone with all of our heart, or whatever that looks like, we naturally equate heart in our culture with feelings, with emotions. Are, are feelings and emotions valid? Absolutely. They're real, and they drive us to do incredible things, and they could wound us if we're hurting. So I'm not dismissing feelings, but we do need to put feelings in the proper context when we see in the Hebrew scripture the idea of loving someone, God, with all your own heart, or holding your commandments into, or God's commandments in your heart. It's not saying that, hey, as long as you feel love, like you're loving God, love God. It's not saying that, hey, listen to God's teaching, as long as it feels like it's good for you right now. It's not saying that we can take it on demand and then we could choose to erase it when we don't want it. It's saying that we are able to and we need to, as part of your note says, to keep God's teachings in your heart. See, 
keeping his teachings in our heart. That uh, The Apologetic Study Bible says it this way. In the Old Testament, the heart is the central core of a person, and it controls the thoughts, words, and actions of an individual, much as a computer controls a system. A heart programmed with wisdom's values produces thoughts and behaviors consistent with God's order. What is this saying? It's saying that when we've been programmed and we've taught, when we've taken God's teachings into our heart, when we've allowed that to not just be something that goes one in one ear and out the other, when we allow God's word to be hidden in our heart, it can keep us on a path that we are able to experience a life that has peace and prosperity. A life that shows us that no, it doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it does show us that being able to live according to what God says will help us to have a prosperous life, a peaceful life, a good life. Again, prosperity has nothing to do with finances only. It's living the life God has for you. This peace that it talks about is the shalom, this wholeness, a whole life, a prosperous life. And this idea of recognizing that if we keep his teachings in our heart and we allow them to not just be things that we see, but ways that we live, we could plant that seed now, spending time in the word, memorizing scripture, hiding it in your heart that I share with you if I have, when I have people pleasing um, situation, that's really tough for me. I need to remember Galatians 1.10. For those of you who may struggle with anxiety, you may need to remember how First Peter taught cast your anxieties on the Lord, for he cares for you. For those of you that may struggle with depression, you may need to remember that where can I flee from your spirit and where can I hide from your presence? Because if I go into the heights, you are there. If I go into the depths, you are there. And even I try to hide from you in the darkness, you find me because, Lord, the darkness is as light to you from Psalm 139. For those of you who are struggling with finances, you might just remember that we need to put our treasure not here on earth, but our treasures up in heaven. For those of you who don't know the next step, you're struggling with something. There is scripture that will speak directly to you. In fact, that's why you go to hotels across the nation and you see the Gideon Bibles. And in the back, what does it say? It says, if you are struggling with something, it has these lists of different themes, different struggles, different issues. And then you open to the back and it shows verses that will go directly to that same topic. See, God's word is powerful enough to have help us direct and give us wisdom to go to the next step in our lives. And if we can hide that in our hearts, keep his teaching in our heart, that means that we see it, we memorize it, and we hide it so that even we don't feel like it, we still trust in it. And so we have to keep his word in our hearts. Number two, Proverbs 3, 3 through 4, say this. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. See, if the first point that we talk about here is to keep God's teachings in your heart, the second one is to fill your heart with love and faithfulness. The love that we have for God that we're able to pursue him and love him with all of our own heart. And then the faithfulness that combines with that to remind us that when we don't feel it, we still believe it. When we feel like we don't, like he's missing, he's not listening, and we're struggling to know that he's still with us. He could be the God of comfort, that he may be Jesus who's sleeping inside the boat when the storm is around us. And when we call upon him, he's able to still calm storms and move in our lives. See, we need to let love and faithfulness be adorned around our neck. That it's something that when you put a necklace on and it's right over your heart, it's valuable to you. It's important to you. That my girls and I, we have a, um, a necklace where I have, it's like a dog tag and it has a little cutout of where a heart is. And it says, um, it's a, like, what does it say? It talks about how I have two daughters, essentially. That's not how it says. But it's something along those lines. And each of the girls have a necklace that fits, that little heart fits inside that little cutout. And it says, Daddy's Girl. It's something that they don't wear it a lot because it broke one time. We don't want to lose it. But this idea that we want to fasten that love, that identity, that love and faithfulness over our hearts. And then when it talks about writing it on the tablets of your heart, see, again, 
our context right now is when we hear tablet, we think iPad, and we think that's something that you can write down and you can delete and you can get rid of a note immediately. See, in the Old Testament, when they talk about tablets in your heart, what's the tablet going to automatically remind people in the Old Testament from? What's it going to point them to? The Ten Commandments, right? Exodus 20, they're going to look at something that Moses had to go up on top of a mountain, and he was there for a long time, and then he came down, and somehow the finger of God had etched into the stone these Ten Commandments that say how to live. And then, of course, we see that there's the golden calf incident, and he, Moses breaks those the stone tablets, but in Exodus 34, the tablets come back again. The tablets are reminders that this is not something that is just a haphazard, hey, you know what? Remember God loves you and be faithful to him and love him too. And it's not something we could write that down and then throw it away as simply as we can get rid of a note on our iPad tablet. It's this idea of etching it into our very being, that we have been permanently touched by the finger of God and that it shows us not just good advice, but how to live. And then if we let love and faithfulness garland around our neck and we write it on the tablets of our hearts, it reminds us that if we know that in our hearts, we do not just feel God loves us. Yes, we feel it, but we don't just feel it. We believe it even when we don't feel it. And he has touched our hearts in such a way, it's inscribed such a change in our lives that we write it on the tablets of our heart and allow that to change how we live. In verse uh, four, when it talks about how then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. That word a good name can be translated in the Hebrew. It, it, it has this meaning of good name, yes, but why is it a good name? The reason that someone has a good name is because they have a healthy understanding, and it also can be translated as someone who's had success. That we that are really skilled in an area, really successful with certain things. We say, you know what, if you want to go and, if you want to trust someone who has wisdom in this area, go to so-and-so. They've got a good name. They've, they've had success and therefore they are trustworthy. So when we see here, hey, I want to have a successful life on the left column. On the right column, what does it say? It says that if you let love and faithfulness be written in the tablet of your heart, you adorn it around your neck, and you live in the light of his love and faithfulness, then you will have success, which will give you a good name. So you're going to start to notice these, these little couplets of verses. The first one will say, do this, do this, do this. It's a command. And then the next section says, here are the rewards, or here's what will happen if you follow that command. So these... On the left-hand side, these are the, the harvest. These are the desires of our heart. On the right-hand side, it says, in order to get that, here's, those are the rewards for doing what's in these commandments on the right side of your column. So let's continue on. We see here, verse 5 and 6. If you know any verse in Proverbs 3, if you know any verse in Proverbs, chances are this may be it, or at least is one that you are very readily familiar with. It says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. See, we want to recognize that we all have wisdom that we can hear from the world or, or worldly ideas of the right way to live, the right way to lead, the right way to love, the right way to serve. And if we were to trust on everything that we heard in the culture around us on any given year, any given month, any given day, we would hear completely contrary ideas. We would hear things that make no sense compared to something else. And so we recognize that as well as our feelings may ebb and flow, I don't feel God, so I'm not going to follow God. So too can the changing tide of the culture around us. And so if we try to lean on what we know within ourselves and not on what God has told us, it's so easy for our lives to ebb and flow. James 1 talks about how we don't have wisdom because we haven't asked for wisdom yet. We haven't sought his face to say, God, how do you want me to live? And if we don't seek his face and we look at the worldly wisdom around us, we're going to hit dead end after dead end, fall into crevice and chasm after crevice and chasm, and we're going to fall to say, well, God, what happened with my life? Where's the direction I was supposed to experience? And he's going to say, did you trust in me with all your own heart? Did you lean on me and my understanding or on your own? In all your ways, did you submit to me? 
Our notes talk about how one of the ways we do this is to trust God more than yourself and submit to him. Trust God more than yourself and submit to him. When I first memorized um, this passage or these verses uh, years ago, it was trust in the Lord with all your own heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. If you guys know that translation, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. And I like how the NIV kind of read, fix up some translations or kind of clarified some things um, about 10, eight, no, about eight years ago. And here's what I like about it. When I say in all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll make your path straight. That makes it sound like I could go on my own path. Hey God, good to see you. And then go off, continue on my path, acknowledging him without submitting to him. What I like here is how it recalibrates the dynamic of that word. It's not just saying, hey, God, I'm glad that, you know, you're here and I get that you're telling me to do something else. I've acknowledged you. Fix my path. You know, like it's not, that's not how it works. It's in all your ways, submit to him. When there's a contra, or sorry, conflict between what you want and what God wants, we submit our desires to God's desires. If there's something that we think we want to do, even though we know it might be sinful and God has told us directly not to, We don't lean on our own understanding. We don't lean on what we want. We submit our ways to our king, to our father, to our God. We don't just acknowledge him. Hey, God, keep on going. We stop and say, I'm not going to keep on going until you're leading me that way. I'm not going to go anywhere you don't have me going. See, in contrast, there's verse 5 that says, instead of trust the Lord with all your own heart, and then not on your own understanding. There's a contrast. There's an opposite of this. If you want to write down Proverbs 28, 26, the opposite of that, of what we hear, see here, is 28, 26 says, those who trust in themselves are fools, but those who walk in wisdom are kept safe. We say, God, I want direction. And God says, trust in me with your own heart and submit your ways to my ways and I will make your path straight. Where you don't see a way, I will make a way. When you've been directionless, I will give you direction in this and you'll be able to follow the Lord and what he has for us if we not just acknowledge him, but we submit to him in all of our ways. See, verse 5 and verse 6, it's the crux of this passage. It's a beautiful section, and it's one of the hardest things to do, to trust God with all our own heart. Notice the heart keeps coming up in these first three sections here. But I want to share with you, and maybe I'll post it somewhere. If you, have, if you would like a copy of it, um, you can email me about it. But there's a prayer that I found um, inside. It's a bookmark that I found in one of my dad's old books years and years and years ago. And I prayed it every day for many years. It's from Thomas Merton. Uh, it's from a section, a book called Thoughts on Solitude. And it helped me to figure out if I had listness or I lacked that direction. Here's what this prayer said. And I hope it blesses you in the same way it blesses me. It says, my Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me, and I cannot know for certain where it will end. Nor do I really know myself, and the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean that I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, will I trust you always. Though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you never leave me to face my perils alone. That if we trust God and say, God, I think you want me on this path, but guess what? I'm not just going to acknowledge you and stop. I'm going to submit. And if you want me on another path, I don't know where this road is going, but I know wherever you're going is the road I want to be on. If we want direction, we trust him more than we trust ourselves and we submit to him. Number four, when we say that we want to have a life that is healthy, we, could, we look at what verses 7 and 8 tell us. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. See, this talks about this idea of see life through God's eyes, not your own. This goes back to our first week in um, the Proverbs series. The idea of wisdom is seeing through God's eyes, not our own. But I need to be very clear about something as we look at this passage. Because this passage at face value can look like it's saying... 
if someone is sick and doesn't have health in their body, if someone doesn't have nourishment in their bones, if we look at the inverse of this, then you, someone might be tempted to say, well, then they must be wise in their own eyes. They must not be fearing the Lord and they must be shunning evil. That is not what this is saying. It's not saying that anyone who's been sick is shunning evil and fleeing from God. Because we know that Proverbs, it's not, it's not the law. It's not God tells us you shalt do this or thou shalt not do that. It's also not prophecy in which a prophet will speak to God's people to call them to an account or to tell them what will happen if they don't. It is this wisdom literature in which it shows, hey, these are general principles of wisdom of how to live. But it doesn't mean that every sick person must be failing to fear the Lord. Because then we would be putting ourselves in a place of judgment that is not our place to be to say, you must be sick. Then you just start pointing at people who are, have colds and be like, sinner. You know, like it's not, this isn't how this works. It's not. And we would be remiss if we looked at people who were unhealthy and struggling and automatically assumed that there must be something wrong with their spiritual walk. You know why? Because we see the example in Job in which his friend said, listen, there's a lot of bad things happening to you. What did you do wrong? No, I, I haven't done anything wrong. No, no, really. Like, you must have done something wrong for God to do all these things in your life. And we see that Job is eventually vindicated of that. Yeah, he still needs to be called out from the Lord. Job 38 through 41. If you want to be humbled, read just three verses of that, let alone all four chapters. But when we look at that and we say, listen, as a general principle, if we live life the way God wants us to live, we will live a life that is healthy. If we, in general, as a principle, don't, what does Proverbs say? You know, it's, don't, don't get given to gluttony when you're in the context of people around there. It'd be better for you to put a knife to your throat than to eat too much food. I mean, that's an idea of saying, don't eat too much, right? If it says, hey, don't go into the pathway of sinners or stand in the way of the mockers or live according to the pressure we talked about last week, hey, you will probably live longer if you put yourself around people who are not going to put you in danger. These are general principles, and they are not things that we can look at people and then make assumptions about the, their spiritual walk based on whether they're healthy or not. That is not what it is. What it does show us, though, is that there are times when we are not walking with God and we are making choices that are against wisdom that we may experience some of the consequences that if we are eating too much or we aren't exercising or we aren't doing these things that we say we want to live a healthy life, but we're not taking any of the steps to make it happen, then we may have health problems, that there may be issues. But it doesn't mean that we can look at people and say, you must be a sinner because you must be shunning evil because you have a cold for the third time this week. Instead, it's saying in general, if we live a life that is following after God's wisdom and we're seeking after him, there are things that happen. But as a general rule, it'll be a life that is healthier. Because we don't know, we don't know why. I read a book before that talked to the com compared and contrasted Daniel in Daniel 6 to Stephen in Acts 7. And it talked about how Daniel, God showed up and, and protected him from the lion's den or from the lion's mouths, shut the mouths and he lived. Stephen, he was stoned for his faith. And the author, Lieutenant Carey H. Cash says, we don't know why he saves some, he heals some, he protects some, and he doesn't others. It's not for us to decide and to know. We don't know. We wish we could. But what it shows us is that when we see life through God's eyes, we can see how both Daniel and Stephen, one through his life and one through his death, proclaims the gospel and the goodness of God. We cannot see it, and I cannot pretend to understand all the heartaches that you all have felt and wondered, why is this happening? I would be a liar if I said I knew. But what I do know is that we could lean into the Lord in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the trial and the brokenness. And by leaning into him and, sh and fearing him and shunning evil, doesn't mean we have a perfect life, but oh, it'll be a good one. Not an easy one, but it could be healthy because it shows us the right, proper relationship we have with the Lord.
I have only a couple minutes left, so I want to circle down to verses 9 and 10. 9 and 10. The point here says that honor the Lord with your wealth. You want to have to know you can be provided for on the left side of your column. On the right side of the column says honor the Lord with your wealth. Verse 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth. There's where I got it from. Um, with, the f- with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. So if we want to be provided for, give to God first. Let me be clear. Does that mean that this is like a get rich scheme that we just give to the Lord and like we'll have more stuff. And so do we give out of the dynamic that we want to get more? No, no, no. We give because we are created in the image of a giver God. And we give because if God knows he could trust us with a little, he'll give us more, not for our own sake. But if he knows he could give us a certain amount and we give cheerfully and obediently and powerfully to his kingdom, his cause and his glory, then he could give us a little bit more and we could still give cheerfully and obediently to his kingdom, his cause and his glory. And what does that mean? More people will come to know Jesus. More people will experience the life that he has for them. More people will be filling the seats of heaven rather than falling into decay in this world and will be able to see lives that are changed because if we honor the Lord with our wealth, that means we're giving to him out of the first fruits, out of the tithe, out of the very first that we have. We're giving it to him so that his kingdom would come, so that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And yes, they talk about this abundance language of saying your barns will be overflowing, your wine will be overbrimmed. And what it's saying is talking about you have a God, we have a God that does not give into a scarcity mindset. He doesn't look and say, oh my gosh, how am I going to be able to provide for all the people who love me? We have a God who comes from an abundance mindset. He says, if you trust me, you don't even know how much I can bless you with. This is not get rich quick as if it was. If, the, if we took this and said, hey, give to God and you'll get a ton of money. And that's the point. Well, then, as my old pastor would say, well, then we should just give $100 bills to everybody on their way out and say that they're going to give more back later. See, the study Bible, the, sorry, the New American Commentary says it this way. Proverbs is not so much concerning itself with ceremonial religion. Just, hey, just give your first fruits and just check off your boxes. They're not doing that as much as it is exhorting the reader to demonstrate gratitude toward and confidence in God rather than in wealth. It's saying, listen, show that God is your focus and the one to whom you honor first. We don't honor our money by giving to God sometimes. We honor God by, with our money. The Apologetic Study Bible says his, God's purpose for us is not to make us rich but rather to develop in us godly character. And his responses are designed with that goal in mind. He will give more because he knows that if he gives, we will maybe do that out of obedience at first. But then once we know the joy of giving, you have to hold us back from continuing to do it. It's not about the money we receive. It's about the way that we can give. Why? Because you and I are created in the image of a giver God. And so when we give... We are living in his image in a very real, tangible way. You want to know that you can be provided for. Honor God with your wealth and see how he shows up. Times when we've been struggling financially and we get a check in the mail or a card from somebody that out of nowhere just blesses us. And it shows that God is a good God. He's faithful and he provides. We honor him with our tithe above the, over and above the top. It shows that he provides for us and he can give us more so he can trust us more so that more can know Jesus. And then lastly, verses 11 and 12. 11 11 says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. If you look at the left column, you say, I want to know that God loves me. The right column tells us this. Don't flee from his discipline. Lean into it and into him. What does this mean? Well, for those of you, those who may not know Jesus yet, if you've experienced times in which you've gone down a road and you know it's not right and then you struggle at the end of it, that you, you pursue one of these, these things of success and an idol is, oh, you know, I want to have the best career. Maybe you've had a great career and then you found yourself still wanting. 
It's a way of God calling you back to him or calling you to him for the first time. And one of the scariest verses or verse that should cause us to to be concerned comes in Romans chapter one. In Romans chapter one, starting around in verse 18 near the end, it talks about this idea that how people had been so given into their sinful desires that there's these four words that, that are a little scary, that God gave them over to those desires. What does that mean? It means that there are two types of people in this world, as C.S. Lewis says. One, that say to God, thy will be done. Whatever you want from me, Lord, I will do. I will go. I will follow. I'll trust in you in all my, in all my ways. And then the other, C.S. Lewis says, is to those to whom God says, thy will be done. Hey, it's God saying, you've lived your whole life not wanting your own will. You've lived your whole life not wanting anything to do with me. I'm going to give you over to that. That if God is still disciplining you, rebuking you, calling amongst the discipline and the pain to you, it means he still loves you. And that's hard when we don't know Jesus yet, but it's true. We see it in Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11. We see it in Job 5, uh, 5, 17 through 18, which said, Blessed is the one whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heals. He may inflict pain, but it's not to harm us. He inflicts pain to heal us. It's when you get hurt and someone has to tie something extra tight in order to stop the blood and it hurts when they put the tourniquet on you. It's the moment in which you have medicine that you don't like to take, but the medicine you don't like to take hurts your body now to heal your body later. It's the fact that he hurts not to give us harm, but to prosper us and to give us hope in a future. And for those of you who don't know Jesus, he may be calling upon you by allowing your idols and that which you put above God to falter at your feet. But for those of us who know Jesus already, we need to lean into those times he's disciplining us, he's rebuking us, he's calling us out and surrounding us either through his word we learn that we fall short, through recognizing that we have community and people can be iron sharpening iron who help us to become who God calls us to become and live the life he calls us to live. It could be through prayer, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we need to hear the rebuke of the Father. Because another way that verse 12 says, in the NIV right now it says, the Lord disciplines those he loves. Another translation says it this way. The Lord chastens everyone he accepts as a child. But if he calls you his own, there are times when you'll be chastened. In the same way that I don't discipline other, kid, other kids when I'm at like a park or like a playground area. You know why? Because that's rude and weird. But two, <laughs> but two, because they're not mine. I can't just go and say, kid, stop doing that. Kid, stop doing that. Instead, I can, I can rebuke or call alongside or chase in Shaylin and Elise to help them know the right way, even when they're surrounded in a world of people doing it the wrong way. We could train them in the way they should go, that in the end they would not depart from it. We would go about our day talking about the ways in which God is working. That if we talk about God in our everyday, our kids will be more likely to follow him every day. Not that it's perfect, but we can lay that foundation. See, when it comes to the idea of don't flee from his discipline, if you're hurting now, ask him why you're hurting. What is it you're trying to show me? Why do I have this pain? What is going on? And what might you want to show me out of this? Look into his word. Ask trusted friends who know the Lord. Whatever you need to do, come alongside him. And so he can discipline. He can come alongside and encourage you. As we close, we talk about in the very beginning, the harvest, the desires of our heart, the things that we want. But we know too that there are work, there's work that's required on our part to get there. So as we look at the left-hand column, that's the harvest, things that we want to have. What's the work we need to do today to get to there tomorrow? What are the things that we need to commit to? Because we can look at it this way, that his love and his faithfulness and his teaching, verses 1 and 2, those things tell us that his love, his faithfulness, teaching, one, 1, 2, and 3, actually, those are the seeds that need to be planted. 
And then we water those seeds by time with him, by trusting him, by submitting to him, and it starts to grow. And then the, in all your ways, acknowledge him or submit to him. Then the next three verses, verses, uh, sorry, the next three sections, seven through 12, tell us ways in which it's hard to submit to God. It's hard to submit to him by living according to his wisdom. It's hard to submit to him by honoring him with his wealth and it's hard with our wealth. And it's hard to submit to him when we're being disciplined by him. But in all your ways, you submit to him. It's like a gardener who's pruning and feeding and coming alongside and sharing and growing and disciplining you by getting rid of different things so that through the pruning, through the planting, through the fertilizing, through the reaping, you can experience the harvesting. That the life that you want to live starts with your choices today. It's not a chia pet that pops up tomorrow. It's a viable plant harvest that takes a long time and we don't like to be patient and we live in a fast food on-demand culture but thanks be to God that we have a God who gives us the food that's not fast but the food that nourishes the bread of life and thanks be to God that we don't have a on-demand everything that we want but we could cry out to him and his word and his presence are on demand whenever we need him and if we live that way we get to live, experience the harvest. But there's work that needs to be done before we get there. Will you and will I give up on that because we don't feel it in our heart? Or will we experience the heart as the will, as that which programs our thoughts, words, and actions, and choose, even when we don't feel, to choose to love him, to trust him, and then in so doing, submit to him and experience what he has for each of us. Father, we thank you that you are here in this place, Lord, and we pray, God, that if one of these things resonated with us, that you would speak to us in such a clear way. I pray that every person who's in this room or listening online will be able to look and experience a moment in which they knew, this is why you had me here, Lord, or this is why you had me listening to this online. And God, when we hear that, may what we hear from you not be something that goes in one ear and out the other, but may it be so treasured up in our hearts that the heart is our soil through which we want to grow, but it's through trust and through pruning and discipline that you are allowing it to become the harvest that you want it to be. So God, may you speak in us, to us, and through us, and may we live a life of a harvest, one, so that we can have the life you have for us, but two, so that those who don't know you yet could see our lives and not give, our, not give us credit, but to give you glory. We love you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.